This is Robert Ross. This interview with Mark Gatiss was recorded in the spring of 2016, before the thrilling news that Jodie Whittaker was cast as the new Doctor Who, and also before the League of Gentlemen reunited for the Christmas specials of 2017. Please enjoy the interview. Thank you. Everyone's a fruit and a nut cake. I'm glad to say we have him on day release today, Mr. Mark Gatiss. So, God, that was bleak. <laughs> Forgotten uh, how bleak that is. I wouldn't do it now. <laughs> Jesus, we're not going there. Um, so, uh, Mark, thanks for making this today. Um, I know some people probably were going to see you last year, but uh, better late than never. We're here. Are we recording now, David? We are. Is that a thumbs up? It's very dark over there, darling. Okay, you got Bernard you. Cribbins, okay. though, didn't you? We got Bernard Cribbins. We got yes. a super sub. Yes, but anyway, it's on. Yes, I hope it's so. is it on. Can you hear us? <clears throat> I'd be awfully upset if you couldn't. Okay, marvellous. So, uh, the League of Gentlemen Series 3, that clip was from. Yes. Um, let's take you back to the League. Obviously, that was your, your first flush of stardom, I suppose, wasn't it, really? How, how, did, um, how did the League get together? <clears throat> well, we met at college. Um, Steve Pemberton and I were in the same year, a place called Bretton Hall, which is now gone. Most of my past is gone. They, they keep closing these places. You're supposed to be able to go back and be nostalgic, and we just go around these building sites and <laughs> cry. Um, and uh, we were doing this terrible drama course, degree course, uh, Mickey Mouse degree. And, um, and then I remember distinctly, uh, Steve and I were immediately friends, and we, we had such a shared sense of humour. We used to do this... We wrote this double act... Um, called Fat and Crass, who were like a Bernard Manning joke uh, thing. But the, the point was they they um, they did the jokes, but, you know, it was, it was one of, the one I always remember is, uh, why do Pakistanis have a little red dot there? Uh, I don't know why the Pakistanis have a red dot there. It's because of their belief in the one true God. And it was just all, it was just the literal facts, you know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's a couple making love in bed and uh, little Johnny runs in he says mummy mummy what's that black triangle between your legs she goes it's a bit twat <laughs> things like that <laughs> I've never forgotten them um, so it was just the thing you know and we had we had a we had a modest success with that at, at college and we were doing these things and then um then I remember the photo of the next year's intake was put up, and the, there was Reese, Reeson, that's his real name, Reeson. And uh, we both laughed at him because <laughs> he was doing this funny face. We thought he was an idiot. <laughs> and then we met him and we were proved correct. Uh, and then my friend Gordon uh, Anderson, Gordon Scott, then, who later directed uh, Catherine Tate and the In Between Us, mm. had a friend at Leeds University called Jeremy Dyson, and he, he, he said that uh, deadly thing of like, I've got a friend you'd really like, you know, usually means it's the opposite. But we got on immediately, and we, spe- we met on New Year's Eve, 1931, <laughs> and we spent the entire evening in this awful pub in Leeds trying to remember the name of the John Inman sitcom about the rock factory. Pre-internet days, you couldn't just look it Odd up. Odd man out. Odd man out. <laughs> but we were, I mean, we just spent, we, we were like cudgeling our brains trying to remember this bloody thing. I thought, there must be something here, if, it, <laughs> if that's what we're doing. And then we, um, we all collaborated on various things in various combinations. And then we let, when we left uh, college, um, Steve and I did a play. We'd done at the National Student Drama Festival. We took it to, to, to the Canal Cafe in London. 
And then we, uh, it was Gordon who put us together, and that, you know, Barry Tuckway. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he'd done a, a fringe play, uh, and there was, a, there was a season at the um, cockpit in Edgware Road called I Wish I'd Seen That. And it was, they were restaging various fringe plays, which had been very well received but hadn't been widely seen. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't get his cast back together. So he basically had a five-night block empty. And he said to all of us, why don't you do a sketch show? And because we'd all been brought up on Python and not the 9 o'clock news and everything, um, we were very responsive to that, and that's how it started. And was your Good comedy... That's, okay, that's, <laughs> was, was your, was your comedy uh, sort of influences of that sort of quite surrealist, bleak... Obviously, because you, your, your love of horror and sci-fi is, is well known, but but your comedy roots, I suppose, would be Python, would it? Uh, it was all sorts. I mean, that's the thing. I, I was thinking about this in a way because I thought you'd ask me. I thought <laughs> I'd better give it some thought. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that um, it was all kinds of things, and especially growing up in the seventies, there was so much variety, mm. literally variety, yeah. but also stuff to to enjoy and draw on. I mean, my great heroes always were Ronnie Barker. Leonard Rossiter, Alastair Sim, comic actors, that's who I loved. But, and I used to, I used to find it almost inconceivable that Norman Stanley Fletcher was the same man on a Saturday night in a loud jacket and specs. I just, it's an incredible performance. Mm. So that sort of thing. But, I, you know, Dave Allen, I absolutely loved, obviously, comic horror. He, big, big element of horror and his stuff. He loved horror movies. And th- those ghost stories he used to tell were my favourite things in the world. Mm. He used to, and if you remember, anyone remembers Dave Allen, but he was a great Irish comic. And he used to do these stories at the end of his show, which were sketches and all sorts of stuff. But he used to just tell these shaggy dog stories. And whilst, as he was saying them, they were really scary. And then he'd just pull the rug at the end with some brilliant punchline. But I loved him. Um, in fact, I wrote the, the uh, Freddie Jones part in the League Christmas special for him, but he was too ill to do it. Did you? I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, little gosh. factoid oh, for you there, Rod. I'm, I'm pleased. I can go home happy. Um, um, okay. And uh, yeah, so all that, but it was it was lots of stuff. You know, I mean, there's something that, that vexes me about modern comedy. Everything, <laughs> uh, actually, no. Just in terms of broadcast, is that 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 there's. You know, when Miranda was a big success, suddenly all that was allowed was sort of knockabout, pure fun nice comedy mm. and you think well that's wonderful but uh, you know maybe on the tuesday and then on wednesday maybe you want something a bit odder then maybe thursday you want a sitcom maybe friday you want something very dark you know but there's a sort of all or nothing principle i think that applies across the board it's not just comedy you know yeah. if there's a success people suddenly i remember being stuck in a meeting once um, and it was all about slumdog millionaire the slumdog effect and and everyone's everyone's film that was pitching at the time was suddenly but it has to be like Slumdog. And you mm. go, well, it doesn't, because the reason that it was a success is because it was unexpected. What you need to look for is the new unexpected success. Yeah, sure. And in a way, that's what the BBC's always done, isn't it? That they, they take chances, they take risks. They do do variety, you say, across the board. Yeah. Well, they used to, yeah. not so much yeah. now. Um, even we're talking uh, backstage, it's 20 years since uh, the league first got together which seems impossible to me and it's it's 10 years since the league film mm-hmm. um so so do you think that the bbc today would commission that series it's hard to say um yes and no i mean look at mrs brown <clears throat> that's uh, i love that show and it's not it's more than anything it's because it's so it's so unreconstructed um but it's also unexpected mm. 
So the, I would, it's, it's hard to tell. There isn't a sort of great big Stalinist orthodoxy. The, things do still creep under the radar. The trouble is, I think it's more, more than the broadcasters. We live in a very over-examined age. And people are ready to take offence straight away. Mm. We, but we've, we were talking about doing something for the, one, of, one of our league anniversaries. We'd still like to. We're not announcing anything except today where I'm doing it in public. <laughs> uh, but, but really because, you know, we just want to see if anything happens before mm. we make any grand statements and then we have to re- retract from them. But I said uh, the other day we should... What we should do is do it like a documentary about trying to come up with something. And all we do is just go through a list of our own sketches and just go, couldn't do that, couldn't do that. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and I, so I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, it was always a gamble. Um, I, used to, I used to massively sing the praises and defend Mark Thompson, who was then controller of BBC Two, because he commissioned the show. <gasps> Only years later did I discover that he turned it down seven times. <laughs> True. Wow. It got through yeah. by the skin of its teeth. We were actually on a location recce in Haworth, and it was it was off. We I remember our producer and assistant producer going off in huddles. It was off. We never knew. We just knew something was off. Okay. And um, it was just sheer tenacity that yeah. got it through. Yeah. And then once it was a success, of course, suddenly it was like everything has to be like the League of Gentlemen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we benefited briefly. But in, in 97, you won the Perrier Award in Edinburgh. <clears> and that same year, you got the radio series, um, which was, I, I think, was a brilliant radio series. I mean, but, but how quickly was it that you, that you got wind that the TV show was going to come on? Well, there was a thing then, uh, a very good idea, called, it was called Buy Media. Mm. The BBC had, had rather had its fingers burnt by losing lots of its big radio shows to ITV, essentially just by taking too long to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And they invented briefly this brilliant idea of actually, like the same production team would make the radio show and then very quickly go into TV, and that's what we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it didn't last long, but it's a great idea. And it, they could still do with it now because they sort of still lose things, I think. Because the radio show pretty much is series one, isn't it? Uh, yes, and we, I mean... Not here to bash the BBC, quite the reverse, but we did have a curious uh, situation where we um, we did the radio series. It, it got this Sony Silver did it or one of them, anyway, something, and it went very. It was very successful, and we made the first TV series. But we genuinely wanted to make a second radio series before we did the second TV mm-hmm. series. And Radio Four were really sniffy, and they said, "Well, you've got to come back with a with a proposal." And we literally went, okay, we'll just make another TV series. Then. <laughs> yeah. We never did it. And, uh, but we really wanted to. It wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, we've done the radio now, we'll just move into mm, TV. Because mm. it was great for proving things. We also wrote loads of stuff specifically for the radio. Dr. Say, Chinner, yeah, yeah, there, yeah. Mr. Ingleby yeah. stayed on the radio, really. Mm, mm. Um, it was great. We loved it. And it was, I mean, some, someone must have them somewhere. But someone took our photos on that first night in the radio theatre. And it was like, I felt like, oh, this... You know, if this works, this is the beginning of something. And mm. I don't know where they ever went, but it was it was great. And we all um, we all listened in every week around like like it was the war. You know, <laughs> at the end of the arches, I was it into the arches. I can't remember. And uh, it's just so exciting. It does work really well on radio. Mm. If you've not heard the radio show, it's amazing. The, the, big, the big problem really was as huge fans of radio mm. shows, radio comedy was that. It didn't really benefit some of our most famous stuff, as it were, at the time, because because if you have dramatic pauses, you think 
it's World War Three. You think something's <laughs> gone wrong. <laughs> so it, I think some of them are a bit. Some of the big sketches, like the Cave Guide and the Best Man, are a bit trunk, a bit sort of tight. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of the a lot of the stuff we wrote specifically, which was just meant to be in people's heads, I think works really well. And, and a lot, the, lot the panda the, sketch. I, I love that. Yeah, and like the Goon Show. I mean, it, the characters in your imagination yeah. are probably more bizarre than what you saw on TV. Yes, in a way, aren't yeah. They, so. I mean, we had this and. We did change a lot of things, like the name of the town, but mm. um, the Denton twins, one of them in the radio series, is like a massive monster. She's just Radcliffe, it isn't that? It mm. just, just makes these terrible... Like, one of them talks like a child, and the other one just goes... <laughs> 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 so, so the question about the League is, why the League of Gentlemen? Why was it called the League of Gentlemen? Oh, well, we had, you know, again, with the weight of history on mm. your shoulder, I'm always very wary of these things, because... You know, because obviously I think of Jack Hawkins. You see, yeah, straight away. well, that's where it comes from. But we, you know, you, we, it's like naming a band. You think this could be a really big moment, or we could just sound like wankers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or the people who decide to call their their bands, you know, the illustrious agents of Hairbrush. And it's like, oh, then that will be famous one day. That'll be. It's not. It's not. Um, we just, I don't know. We toyed with the Assassination Bureau. It was always quite filmic. Mm-hmm. Very nearly the Pawn Dwarves. <laughs> A soft cell reference, <laughs> and then uh, and I thought <clears throat> I just suggest I suggest the League of Gentlemen because it's a great film, and I thought well it sort of fits. It's a it's a collection of people and uh, mostly men. We are men. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it got you know in, in retrospect because of that bloody film, uh, the League and the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is a brilliant comic. But mm. when that film came out, you know, internationally it was confusing, and then because some people, which I hate, some people just still call the League of Gentlemen the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Or they think we were something to do with it, which yeah. I'm not happy with. You know. <laughs> Although what they mostly say is... Who are these of, people? <laughs> mostly say the League of Gentlemen, which drives me crazy. <laughs> the only good thing about the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the film, is David Hemmings is in it. And he's That's right. very good. His last, his last, his last appearance, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, mm-hmm. the success was, was pretty much instantaneous. What, was it global success or was it just uh, a, a UK success? No, it was global. I mean, we had. Uh, I mean, we won the um, <clears throat> Golden Rose of Montreux uh, in 1999. That was a huge moment. That because it was what the goodies won. Absolutely. We all knew we was like, we knew we were up for it. And this was one of those. I'll never forget. I cherish this moment. Jeremy and I were writing series two, and we got a call saying, "You've got to go to Switzerland now." And we just we just down tools and we we went to the airport and I remember because nothing was booked, running up to the flight desk like Peter Wingard, and I said, "I've got to get to Geneva tonight." <laughs> Thrilling. We got there. Paul Jackson met us, and he gave literally gave us wadges of Swiss francs because we had nothing. We just you know put our suits on and went, and we, we won. And we met Victoria Wood. And all these international buyers and all sorts. I remember particularly a Swedish judge saying, there is a shop like that in, in my town. <laughs> and, uh, it was amazing. And, yeah, and it did. It, it, it did. Uh, it sold very well over the years, strangely. But I, I think maybe it's because, maybe not strangely, because it's, it's actually, rather than things which are trying to be mid-Atlantic, or it's actually the things that are very specifically British, which often do the best. Absolutely, you know? yeah, yeah. And you mentioned the goodies. That's uh, the first time I interviewed you. We've discussed this. It's been 16 years since I interviewed you for the first time. I mean, my God, where's the years going, Mark? This is down the toilet. Ter- terrifying <laughs> me. But I think you, you were there when I interviewed the goodies. That's right, yes. yes yeah. that's, I've got and, my signed book. And, and, and you still let me do you as well after this. <laughs> Amazingly. Yes, you queued up to get your yeah, book signed. Oh, God, it was thrilling. Oh, my God. And, it was thrilling. Yeah, it was, that was exciting times. <clears> so, so um, 
was it a big hit in America then? Because that's the one that, that, that's hard um, to crack, isn't it? Well, we did... Uh, we had one of those early experiences that Comedy Central co-produced a second <coughs> series and it was a bad idea because we just, we just had to sort of ignore them. They, uh, we just suddenly, uh, you know, the point of it was it was what it was. It wasn't a committee show, it was us. And we got all these memos saying, what is a spot? Is it like a zit? <laughs> just endless things. And, and I remember when they finally showed it, so much was pixelated. There's a bit in Alvin and Sonny, the swingers, you know, mm-hmm. and Alvin opens the emergency, he's putting the emergency <laughs> heater on, it's just packed full of dildos. And the, the screen was so pixelated, it looked like frost had got into the room. <laughs> it's like, well, there's no point in showing it. The whole show is, is completely objectionable. Why, why stop here? Why start here? Um, so, no, we didn't. I think, I mean, it had a certain following, and we got. Um, over the years, you know, you find out. That I met Judd Apatow in uh, America, and he loved it. He found it somewhere. Uh, the, the guys who do uh, South Park yeah. did an entire series called That's My Bush about George W. Bush because of the League of Gentlemen. You know, when you hear things like that, it's thrilling, really. So you became that, that strange thing, a cult success, I suppose, yes, in America. Yes, yes. You're a big cult, I know that much. I am a huge, <laughs> I'm a huge cult. <laughs> But uh, it's, it's, is it strange now, looking back? It's, it's quite a while ago. I mean, do, do those characters still make you laugh? Do, do, do Steve and, and Reese and Jeremy still make you laugh when you, when you get together? No. no. Did, did, did they ever make you laugh? I never see it. No, of course, yes. I mean, when we... Uh, I haven't watched the show for years. I honestly... You know, I used to think this, and you'd read interviews with people... And they'd say, I never watch my old stuff. And you think, yeah, you must do. I don't. Mm. And, I, and it's not, I'm not being perverse. I'd sort of like to. I just never get, get around to it. Also I, keep meaning, well, I keep meaning to sort of sit down and watch the lot. Mm. And I will catch glimpses of it like that. It's in a big surprise. I was very surprised. I love that, that uh, monologue. But it's so bleak. Jesus Christ, I'd forgotten. <laughs> um, horrible. Uh, I'm just getting soft, you see. But uh, I'd like to. I just, yeah. But it's not... Uh, so I don't study in that way. So it's a nice surprise when you see things. But when we meet up, um, it's like no time has passed at all, mm. and which is the best sort of testament of friendship, really. We just... when we, we A couple of years ago, we did a, a haunted house thing on the radio. Yeah. Reese said... Uh, it's Reese's idea, or this, this friend, the producer, that we'd spent the night in a haunted house. And the, the programme was hysterical. But the journey to the house was one of the funniest nights of my life. It was marvellous. We, we had a reunion on the train. We were crying with laughter. And you forget, you've got such a shared sensibility anyway, but also a kind of shorthand of mm. things that have happened to us over the years. You know, It's just lovely to get back together. And without, you know, without enmity, it's not as so many teams. Yeah. We've never split up. We're like ABBA. <laughs> officially split up we just you know um, just laugh always there we're always we're there waiting for the yeah, call yeah. Uh, you, you did a couple of, you've done um, horrible histories together as well, yeah, yeah. You? which yeah, is very yeah. exciting it's pretty much this sort of that's the, the well new you know well no that's group, the thing when it? we were we were sitting behind that desk if you saw it but it was like those orange film ads and uh the Horrible History team we're all big fans. It's a wonderful show. But they were sort of sitting at our feet. And I said to Steve, oh, Christ, we've become venerable. <laughs> when did that happen? It's frightening. They were, they were literally sitting in front of us like, oh, God, I don't know what to say now. It's, it's like when Terry Jones did The Young Ones or something. It's mm-hmm. become, you become this sort of yeah. sainted guest star that yes. comes in. Um, and, you, and you've also done some DVD commentaries for various uh, yes. horror films. Uh, lovely we've Vincent Price stuff, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. yeah which is... I can't remember how that came about, but... They're nuts. It's like doing a commentary on a film that has nothing to do with you. It's a very liberating experience. Because <laughs> you just, we love 
those films, Blood and Satan's Claw and uh, Theatre of Blood. Theatre of Blood, yeah. So um, let's talk about your, your horror um, uh, inspiration as, as a kid. I, I think you're a bit like me. You just watched loads of films and read loads of books, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And they were on. That's mm. the thing. Um, and they aren't anymore. Not just, not just like the uh, appointment with fear on a Friday night sort of thing, but just old films generally. They're, just, they're on occasionally, but they used to be an, a staple of TV, and I think it's a terrible shame because that's, when you, that's, your, that's your sort of grounding, isn't it? Yeah. You, just, you just stumble across these wonderful old films and then years later discover that you're not the only person who saw them. Sorry. Sometimes you are. <laughs> um, but particularly with horror movies... Very rarely on. One of my absolute bugbears is that when Halloween, every Halloween, there are no horror movies on. And then three days later, someone puts one on randomly. It's like, put it on a bloody Halloween, that's the point. But I, I now do this, because you have to do it yourself. You have to self-program. Mm-hmm. It's like self-medicating. <laughs> I, I, um, I watch horror films on a Friday night where they're supposed to go. Hashtag, yes. Friday, Friday night is horror yeah, night. And it's great. It's become a thing. Mm-hmm. And people ask me for recommendations and stuff. And the great thing is it does, it works. It has the same, I get the same Friday night feeling, but I have to start an hour earlier because I fall asleep. <laughs> oh, <laughs> true. Less. Sometimes two hours. But I just watch the, in the afternoon. They were the, they were the golden days of sort of 17 to the early 80s when Friday night, you would have a universal black and white and followed by a hammer or an amicus. And I mean, mm-hmm. certainly my, my fandom started from that, just watching them. And, and but now I think you get old films on at like half past six on a Saturday morning. Nobody in their right minds awake at mm-hmm. half past six on no. a Saturday morning. Um, I say, if they're on at all. I mean, yeah. obviously there's a mass, so many channels. You can find... Mm. You can find things. You don't have to do that thing of combing the Radio Times at Christmas in case It's a Wonderful Life is on. So, it's on yeah. somewhere mm. yeah. 16 times. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's part of it actually is the scarcity, if that sounds that's not sort of counterintuitive, but mm. the scarcity and also the specialness. Yeah. If Journey to the Centre of the Earth is on the telly, I always watch it. I've got it. I've watched it a million times. But if I don't watch it on the telly, it's not the same. It, ha- it, has a, it has a ritual element to it. And people say to me, well, you can go and buy this stuff now. You, now we're almost spoiled by the fact we can buy all this stuff on Blu-ray. But totally. You, you need to have <laughs> known it as a kid to well, actually I, want it. I, think, I mean, you know, it's a, this is a complicated argument because you, you mustn't fight the tide of history. And it's also wonderful to have so much stuff that's available. available. Mm. But at the same time, as Spencer Tracy says in uh, Inherit the Wind, you invent the telephone, you lose the charm of distance. And it's true. Mm. You kind of, when you've kind of got almost everything, what do you want now? I was just in Forbidden Planet today for my sins, and uh, you know, I was looking at those incredible models. You can get Lon Chaney and Karloff; they're beautiful. But there's almost too much. Yeah. If I, I don't, I don't collect anything like that. I, once, once would have been my dream. Mm. But what, I don't know. It's just too much. I think I, I don't mean, you, and you can't uninvent it. Nor should you want to. But it's sort of. I, I sort of do miss slightly that thing of if you miss something, you missed it. Yeah, yeah. And, and that sounds terribly luddite, but it, there is some there's something in that which means that you you then cherish it more definitely. I think it's a perverse thing of uh, almost like you said before you were the only one or maybe a handful of friends who knew like kind of Lon Chaney Junior. in Spider mm. Baby, for example, which was such a rare film, and now you can buy the Blu-ray and you know, mind you, there's all, you know having said all that, there's still there are films that never appear. In that Alan Frank book of horror mm. movies, which was my Bible for years, literally my Bible, I used to worship it. And, uh, <laughs> um, there, are, there are stills in there, and I've still never seen those films. There's a, there's a, there's, there's a, a Japanese Frankenstein film. What's it called? It's like Frankenstein on um, 
Frankenstein conquers the world or something. And I couldn't look at the picture. It used to frighten me. And it was actually, it's one of, in a sort of Godzilla way, it's actually a child on a tiny set right, with yeah. a huge boulder. Yeah. And this is frightening. I mean, I've never... Where's that film? So there's still... There it's are still somewhere. things out there. Someone will send it to me now. So is this the, the, I, got, I, did, I, I yeah. did an interview and I mentioned that film, The Frozen Dead, with mm-hmm. the Nazis, mm. Frozen Nazis. Someone sent it to me. <laughs> load of rubbish. <laughs> Mention Ashton Martins now, I might get on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, uh, is there a, a horror Asia uh, documentary? Uh, well, that's what, yeah, yes, that was, that's that is, that yeah. was and is the plan, yeah, to okay. do another one. Yeah. Sort of mop up. As well, do Asia and sort of a mop up, okay. but it hasn't happened because uh, it's expensive. I've got to say, there's only, a, there's only a handful of, of film documentaries which, which I insist on people seeing, and one is Hollywood, the 1980 ITV, mm. um, Kenneth Brownlow. Just watching it now. One is Hollywood UK from the early 90s, which was basically about British cinema in the 60s, and one is your history of horror, which I think is just a work Thanks. of genius. I mean, because it's the right man for the job. <laughs> so that's, your love for it just well, comes through know, every the, shot. The, the problem, like, all these things, is you is where to start and where to stop. Mm. And I spent most of my energies after that went out replying to people on Twitter saying, why didn't you do Nosferatu? And you, and you, you think, well, I... I eventually said, well, I, either, I will either sit in a chair and read out a list of films or I would do this. And, of course, I said it again because it's Twitter. And then you say it again because it's Twitter. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, that's difficult. I left yeah. out almost all my favourite films. There's no Doctor Fives, there's no Theatre of Blood. I know. But you can't do it all. And that's, so we had to make a decision to start and stop. And then I did Horror Europa to kind of do that. Which and I would like one, yeah. to do the Asian one, but um, it's difficult. I'm also intrigued by there's a, you know, globally there there isn't a horror tradition everywhere. It didn't take some places, mm. Mm. Um, and it moves around the world. You know, obviously Asia is where it's hot now. Might come back here eventually, but there's, I find that really interesting. But there are some countries which don't have horror films, or they have the odd one. You know, there's a any, anyone from Finland here? No. There's a why not? <laughs> there's a Finnish horror film about a were elk. That's great. Isn't that brilliant? And they've, you know, it's, they've, they've, um, they've made it their What's it own called? version. It's called something like the White Demon, the White Devil. So anyway, so let's go back. We, if you were lucky enough to be here, obviously, if you're hearing this on the on the podcast, hard luck, you missed it. Um, but we showed a clip earlier of a Ninety Night, which uh, again was around about two thousand, wasn't it? I think mm. uh, with Julie Davis. So I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. Were you friends with her, or was, was that no, a, it was a bit later? Job? It was about two thousand five. Was it a bit later? Ago? Okay. Yeah, uh, I knew Julia a little, but we worked together on a on a film <coughs> called Sex Lives with the Potato Men. Oh yes, which um, was an extraordinary experience. Uh, <laughs> it was um, it was a uh, it was it was meant to be like a sort of carry on Ken Loach. Uh, which is why I wanted to do it. <laughs> it was a really good script. It, people were fighting over the script. Mm. And obviously lots of great people were in it, did it? And um, it just didn't work. It just didn't work. And, and then, uh, I, I, it's the only time I've ever had to do it. The, the weekend it was released, because it had lottery money, I sort of had to hide because, it, you know, it was a real... The, the, the tabloids really went for it. Mm. And uh, I, remember, I remember getting a text from a friend of mine saying, congratulations, because the Daily Mail headline had, had included... The words filth and fury. He said, <laughs> he said you, are near, you are nearly the pistols. You've nearly done it. Um, and every, I would say, at least once a year, a quite frightening person will approach me and say, Sex Lies the Potato is my favourite picture. 
<laughs> of course it is. Uh, but the great joy of it was I, Julia and I just, just had the ball. We, had, yeah. we, we just had such... We couldn't stop laughing. And then, uh, then she asked... Then she, I knew she was doing uh, 99, and um, she asked me to come in and do this one... as a cameo, um, that date scene in the first episode. And uh, there was... N- we improvised it. And, and I said, uh, I brought some teeth. And, and there was this curly wig, and I said, I think he might be Scottish. And that was all we had. Mm-hmm. And we made it all up, and that's, that's... And it was just sublime. I mean, and, and also the, the harder... I've never laughed so much in my life. And we, we went through that awful thing of everyone was laughing. We were just in pieces. But then the crew kind of settled down, and we couldn't. We are, it's all in there. You can even the broadcast version. We are, our eyes are wet with tears, it's very, and you can hear our voices like that. We could hardly get through it. I was sitting there. I had to say, she says, "Your hair natural, Glenn." She always called me Glenn, like Glenn, which is great. Now it's, it's an impulse poem after my wife's funeral, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't say it. I couldn't say it. And there was another scene where I have to talk about a lambuna. I, I couldn't say it. And then we eventually had to do it. Julia was in bed and I was in the doorway and she had to leave the room and I just had to do it to an empty bed. <laughs> but it went... Um, so what happened was that we did that and then Steve Coogan, who was the producer, um, he just said, we, just, we need more of Mark come in. And so we just improvised the rest. And the, the last episode where she poisons me with the Angel Delight, the Nana Chocker Scotch, <laughs> we had no money. We shot it in Steve Coogan's house in Brighton. It, and it was... It was it was absolutely hysterical day. I mean, in every respect, it was funny, but it was also mad. We just did, we shot reams of it, and just made, all sort of made up, really, based on Julia's original outlines and scripts. But you know, the, all that stuff with uh, and like she poisons me and I like, go and spit it back out, and we had to shoot that again because the cameraman was laughing so much. <laughs> it was brilliant. And then, do you know, I was just saying to you earlier, wasn't it, the, uh, that 99 casts an extraordinarily long shadow. Uh, there's a dedicated night at Ducky next month. Uh, a lot of gay men like it, surprisingly. Uh, but it's become a real thing. Uh, it's a, Jill Tyrrell is a real heroine to a lot of very, very bad people. <laughs> but I was, in, um, I was in America with David Bradley uh, when we did Invention in Space and Time, and... Um, we had to have our photo taken on the ABC yacht. Okay. You know, and it was like, it was like Hollywood Wives. Mm-hmm. It was ludicrous. It was all sun-kissed and, and there were all these uh, models going in and out and then David and I were there. <laughs> and uh, the photographer, who was Japanese-American guy, he just went, Glenn Bulb? <laughs> I mean, amazing. Of all the places. He was obsessed with it. So then I had to have a picture just going. <laughs> and you also, with Judy, did uh, uh, the Fanny Craddock thing. Yes, Johnny yes. Craddock, which is... Uh, a, a, I adore that. I feel I love Fear of Fanny. Yeah, I mean, uh, how did that get through? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> See, you still think... You can get things through. People just have not to, not to know. <laughs> that was a joy. It was... Um, yeah, I loved. I loved it. It was because it was, it was the first of the BBC Four biopics and uh, a fascinating story. And you know, we had obviously had a natural. 
chemistry anyway. It was just, it was very moving, I thought. And uh, it is a weird story. They were a weird couple, really. And it could have been played for, for last, really, with, with you both being mm-hmm. in it. But it's, as you say, it's a very poignant, mm-hmm. you know, touching story. Of, well, that's of my, that's what I've always yeah. loved. And mm-hmm. that, that's what we always did in the league. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of broad comedy and there's a lot of strange comedy, a lot of comedy horror, but there's mostly pathos, which is what I've always liked. And I, that's what my, my favourite kind of comedy is, sort of bittersweet. I think it, because that's what life's like. Mm. It's not you don't have to be as sort of defined as oh this is a comedy. In fact, something to a friend of mine the other day, you almost do yourself a disservice if you build something as that. It's better for people to find oh it's quite funny this yeah. rather than expecting a laugh the whole time, because because life is always light and shade in that way. Yeah. Absolutely, it's truthful, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But, but that's the, the great sitcoms you mentioned. Porridge, you mentioned you yeah. know, the Stepton Sons, all those yeah. things. They they have real. Well, even, you know, um, I being served, um, that one of my favourite episodes is the one where Mrs Slocum is promoted. Well, Mr Rumbold is poisoned, she becomes the manageress. And, of course, mostly she's, she's a monster. And then she misses them. And she goes back to the shop floor. It's really, it's very touching because they are, they're really good characters. Absolutely, yeah. And um, I don't know if you saw Stag last night with Reece Shearsmith. I've recorded it. That's, that's, that's billed as a comedy. I mean, mm. not God, that's a pretty bleak comedy. But, <laughs> uh, but it's very good, so uh, recommended. Uh, I was going to mention, you know, off the back of, uh, of playing uh, uh, Johnny Craddock, uh, you became a sort of a little bit of a, a Michael Sheen. You were playing quite poor, a lot. I called myself the poor man's uh, Michael yeah, Sheen. Yeah, is, that, is that? Well, I was just calling yourself Michael Sheen. <laughs> um, but because uh, you, you, you played... Um, uh, Bamba Gascoigne. Lee Stevenson as well. Yes, at one point. yes. Uh, no one knows what he talks like, so that's right. <laughs> Bam yeah, Gascoigne, yes. uh, Malcolm McLaren, yeah. um, and Peter Mandelson. Peter Mandelson, yes, in yeah. uh, in Coalition, which yeah. I think is one of the most amazing performances on oh, TV for a long, long time. It's an I love that. I miss him desperately. You bring him back. I love being. I might do a one man show. <laughs> I was. We were all hoping there'd be a Coalition too, in every respect, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> rather than yes. what we got. Uh, I was a bit disappointed. He's kind of disappeared now. Because I thought he. he I, I said to um, James Graham, wrote it because um, you know. We were shooting it, and it was all we were all anticipating the election. We no one knew what was. We had fabulous political debates about about what might happen if if uh, Scotland left, and then if if uh, could could Miliband win? Obviously not. And and could uh, Cameron have a majority? It was fascinating. But I said, um, if we if there's a, if there's a second coalition, I just we one scene because uh, I thought Mandelson will be involved somewhere. Just what one scene of him at home. Uh, watching the election results with a with a box of Kleenex, not specifying what they're for. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned are you being served? Because that's coming back. You're not involved in that at all, are you? The, the new are you being no, served? I'm not. No, but you. I, I've, I uh, well, I can say this. We're on the record, aren't we? Um, yeah, you can. I, I'm. It's. I'm in a difficult position, having been in the dad's arms. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do think I have. To, I do think that's different because it's a big film and it's a film. And I'm, what I'm worried about with these these things is that it's not a healthy sign for modern British comedy. Mm. It's incredibly backward looking. Um, and my fear is they're just waiting to see which one they like the best, and they'll just do another series. And I don't know. I would I would be much more happy if they did a new comedy playhouse of six new half hours and did series off that. Yeah. And and you know they, they, it's it's they're honouring the past, but that's you know particularly porridge Jesus that's a that's a difficult thing to go near, and uh, I just you know I, it feels like they've run out of ideas which they haven't people haven't mm. run ideas mm. it's it, needs, it just needs the the, the the courage to commission them. 
Well, they're doing it to celebrate 60 years of Hancock's Half Hour on TV, which I thought probably the best idea was to, to repeat Show some Hancock. Hancock's Half Hour. Are they doing Hancock? Yeah. <laughs> no, they're not doing Hancock. So they're, no. they're doing it to honour Hancock, but they're yeah. not doing Hancock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They've done Hancock with Paul Merton on yes. the book, um, which almost speaks volumes as why not to do it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, never mind. Um, it's str- but you mentioned the Dow's Army film, which I actually really enjoyed. I, was, I, I went to it with, with, with great trepidation um, because that, that is pretty much a, a well, I was da- I was I was terribly, totally mm. sceptical. Mm. I was sent the script and I read it like this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was totally charmed by it. Mm. And I think more than anything, I was, I was at the premiere, I was sitting with Ian Lavender and he said it's a... It's a very gentle take on the on the on the thing. It is. It's much less sitcommy, and I think it's what it is most of all is very charming. It's rather moving at the end. Mm, mm. I think it's more like a Laundering Gilead film about the Home Guard than yeah. it is that uh, army spin-off, as it were. I think it's rather nice, and it's done very well. It has done very well. See yes. you next time. Absolutely, <laughs> Dad's Army too. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I mean, obviously that's on TV all the time to, mm. to big audiences on, on yeah. Saturday evenings, and to, to go and see you know some amazing actors, Tom Courtney and Michael Gambon, and these people sort of recreating it. it it's uh-huh. and you, of course, <laughs> did well. <yeah. laughs> And also having Ian Lavender and Frank Williams back, yeah, which was yeah. a nice touch. I'm, I'm, always, I'm always won over by that sort of mm. uh, um, nod to the past. Yeah. So, so it's yeah. lovely. Where, were, um, <clears throat> where were Robert Vaughan and David McCallum in the Man from Uncle oh, movie? I, I know. Criminal. Exactly. Ridiculous. <laughs> but, so, yes. But anyway, so, so I enjoyed it. So if you're not seeing it yet, go and see it now. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, off the back of, 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 of all the league stuff and all the stuff you were doing, um, you became uh, not just a writer, you've always been a writer, but you became a novelist. And uh, I want to talk about uh, uh, your Lucian Box books, Lucy which, Box. which, I, which I, I adored. And uh, how, were, they, were they sitting in the back of your mind for a long, long time, or were they...? No, kind of. I was, you know, again, what we were talking about earlier, um, I, just, I was asked if I wanted to write a a book, a novel, and I thought, oh yes, I've always wanted to write a novel, so oh Christ, what have I write about? <laughs> and I, I, if I had always had something at the back of my head, it was a sort of loose James Bond, mm. my ideal thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's how it came about, and then I, and I, they were originally, it was, I was commissioned to write three, and they were going to be all in the same Edwardian setting, and then I had an idea to to, to move it on in a sort of Flashman way, same character 20 years each time and basically have a completely different set of toys to play with so the first one is very uh you know very oscar wildy and uh and then the second one is a sort of um john buchan dennis wheatley thing and then the third one is fleming mm. and by which time he's in his 70s and i thought it's quite it's it's like to play with the different eras of detection and stuff like that um i love doing them they're very hard work and they're much harder than writing scripts although i say that at the moment <laughs> in despair um but um just in terms of um sheer workload mm. uh i really did enjoy them uh, and i'd like to do something else one day but um but the serious club the first one i mean they're all very filmic i mean and they're not been adapted for tv i mean that must have been discussed at some point uh, yeah they've been two uh completely failed attempts <coughs> to do them yeah completely failed yeah. okay <laughs> was that just financial or just the first one was uh first one i pulled the plug on because it was getting so diluted there was no point in doing it okay. you know it was like that there's a very famous story about um uh, Alan Bennett's brilliant Joe Orton film, Prick Up Your Ears, one of my favourite things. And, and uh, it was nearly made quite a long time before it was actually shot. And they got American money, and they only had two caveats. 
does he have to be a playwright? Does he have to be gay? <laughs> <laughs> and and the Vesuvius Club, or the Loose for Box series, was becoming like that. It was mm. like, does he really have to be bisexual? Could he not? Do- oh God, <laughs> could it be set now? No. <laughs> um, and so that, and then another one a few years later, which I had high hopes for, which is with Sky actually, mm. uh, and it was going to be an entirely new, all new stuff. And then that was kind of the victim of regime change. Somebody left, and then it just got wiped off the table. It's yeah. a third time lucky, maybe. We'll see. Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. I can't believe it. it's nearly nearly five o'clock, and I I tend to hand over. Crack and Jack. I know exactly. Thank you. It's not a Friday afternoon. Um, We've not mentioned Doctor Who yet. So, I mean, for us to be in the same room and not mention Doctor Who over an hour, Mark, is... Never seen it. Impossible. <laughs> impossibility. Um, let's, let's talk a bit about Doctor Who, shall we? Uh, yes. We could be here all day. Um, you showed a little clip there from uh, the Doctor Who night from mm. around 99, which I love. Um, uh, that was the so-called wilderness years, I suppose, <laughs> now. Who knew, six years on from there, that uh, it would all I come was, back? I um... was... My partner's doing play in Wales at the moment, and, he, and he, the other day he, he texted me from Lang- Langothlan, which uh, has a special place in our hearts, because in 2003 we were on our way to Ireland on holiday, mm. and we were quite early for the ferry, and we drove through this village, and it said, world's largest Doctor Who exhibition. I said, stop the car! <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't, I'd never heard of it. Didn't, I just, I'd never heard of this thing, and... We had a couple of hours to kill, so we went round it. Bessie was there, mm-hmm. incredibly. I have a picture of me sitting in Bessie, my life's ambition. <laughs> but it was this weird ragbag of things cl- cl- pulled from Longleat and Blackpool, and, you know, Peter Davison's trousers. and just, they were Genuinely. Just, just like, randomly his trousers. And there were all these line. bored okay. kids being dragged around and going, what's this? And I remember thinking, this is it. This is, this is the end. Because mm. what, what this, you know, and about... Eight months later, it came back. <laughs> it was amazing. It was just, that was like, that's how it was. Yeah. So it's always, you know, it's always my favourite show and since I was four and just uh, means the world to me, really. It's, uh, I don't know, and you, can, you can't quantify why. It's I was just say, you can't, can you? No, what what no. is it about it? Because, I mean, we all tend to... All I just said! Four, no, but, <laughs> but, 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 I mean, because we all tend to be... Everyone, everyone I know who's a massive fan of it seems to be four years old when they first see it. Mm. Uh, that seems to be the sort of Well, I think, you know, the, it gets... It just it obviously doesn't get everybody, but it's... Um, it just speaks to you. I, remember, yeah. I can see myself now just glued, sitting... I never, it never hid behind the sofa. I was too interested. <laughs> sitting far too close to the telly. When the Autons came through the shop window, that's my first memory of Doctor Who, of anything really. Mm. And um, it just spoke to me. I was just mad about it. And then what I love is that you, you know, you, you st- it happens all the time. The same, the same trick happens all the time. And uh, I was reading a letter the other day that said uh, Doctor Who is no longer for children and it's far too complicated and we certainly shan't be watching. 12th of March 1976 <laughs> same things recur and you, you, know, you meet you know someone I've met a, a kid recently who's now in that difficult age so it's not as good as when Matt Smith was doing <laughs> and it's it, that's what always happens you know and, and the same you know you have your doctors yeah. and uh, it's amazing that especially when, I've, when, when the show seemed to be on the way out there are still you know Sylvester was so much some people's doctor and stuff like that mm-hmm. and I find that really heartening these days I love that that uh, it just has the same power really 
When would you first become involved professionally? I suppose it was as a sort of spin-off those 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 probe uh, films that you were. Oh, well, I know. I wrote I wrote a book for Virgin. They got the license uh, after the, after Doctor Who came off in 1989. <clears throat> Virgin very cleverly got the license to kind of carry on. So that was my first published thing, Nightshade, which has just been adapted by by Big Finish, rather oh, thrillingly. Um, and I wrote two for them, and then the BBC. Bo- took the rights back <laughs> and I did two for BBC books The Troughton and a Pertwee mm-hmm. and I did those videos with Bill Baggs and then um, and I met John worked with John Pertwee which was amazing he, t- he told me stories about Carry On Cleo uh, it's an amazing story about uh, how cruel Kenneth Williams was to Charles Hawtrey <laughs> he used to Charles Hawtrey used to his mum used to like pack his sandwiches or something mm. Kenneth Williams would just take them eat half of them put them back uh, he had to cut he'd cut out the Times crossword to do and, and Kenneth Williams would just do it and put it back and then one day he just took it all together and, he, and John Furtry said I could hear him now Charlie Hawtrey going where's my fucking bag <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was incredible didn't John Furtry say that your dialogue was the most sayable he'd he ever did been that's the best review I've ever had I think where's Mark where's Mark <laughs> Terrified, <laughs> it's pushed forward. Your dialogue is very failable. That's a pun. Yeah, he was my my absolute hero, and I never, you know, I loved him. I loved him. I, I was de- devastated when he left Doctor Who. I've never quite recovered. I, mean, I never, I never lost my loyalty to the, to the program. But I did all those things that you used to hear about now. I, I wrote to the BBC saying, is it possible for the Doctor to, to regenerate backwards? <laughs> he must come back. I can't bear it. And, uh, is that possible? I don't know. <laughs> Anything's possible, isn't it? Um, we want Paul McGann back. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, he, he was my hero. And, yeah. uh, and uh, I was so thrilled to work with him. It wasn't long before he died. It was just lovely. We talked about all kinds of stuff. And um, fascinating, man. I wish he'd lived longer because he was, he was a great, a great actor, great and versatile actor. He never really, he did that wonderful thing when he played um, Whistler. Remember That's right, that? absolutely. Yes. And he's also in an episode of Virtual Murder, playing Virtual a Spanish he's amazing artist. in that. It's fabulous. Oh, God, yeah. he's sort of in that funny way. People always used to say, "I wish Stan Laurel had done Beckett and stuff like that." He's sort of, if he'd lived a little longer, I think he would have been in. He would have been used, and we would certainly have had him in the League of Gentlemen. <laughs> and I, of course, Big Finish started in yeah, 1999, yeah, so he yeah, died just before yeah. that. So I imagine yes, he'd come yeah, back. He but I suppose he was, he was trapped in that way. He, he, he would do the conventions, he, he was the doctor, wasn't he, mm. for, for a lot of us? And I mean, I'm slightly younger than you, Mark, sorry, but so my, my doctor was Tom Baker, so I felt the same way. Tom regenerated, yes, I, yeah. who is this young blonde chap? Um, but um, I, I, you know, it, your first doctor is the one you mm. adore and everything mm-hmm. else, but, but John's an extraordinary. Uh, Actor, and I think he did go to his grave, you know, regretting not being given more interesting things. But he had, I mean, his other great part is, of course, is Wurzel, and I think um, that's one of the. It's marvelous that series. I've just written the introduction to uh, to a book about it. I love that show. If you haven't seen it, you must see Wurzel Gummidge. It's so again, it's so sad. Mm. Uh, Una Stubbs is amazing. One of the great villains, and she's brilliant. She's so cruel. He's heartbreaking, and it's. It's always got... I watched a couple before I wrote the uh, intro. And I watched episode one, and I thought I'd got the wrong one because it seemed to be too far in. It's Wurzel and Aunt Sally are living in the farmhouse. Mm. And then, of course, it turns out they've, they're basically 
like squatted it while the family are away and uh he opens the shutters and, sh- and it's a beautiful morning and then she says get my breakfast scarecrow because oh yeah that's how i get um and uh and um he goes down to the kitchen but he doesn't know how to do it so he gets this great slab of bread and hacks at it and then raw sausages it's sort of there's some horrible anarchy to it yeah. do you know what I mean I remember that a lot there's a lot of custard pie fights that becomes almost like brutal mm-hmm. and it's got this really dark thread to it it's written by of course by Keith Waterhouse and Willis Hall incredible all shot on the film and there's a particular episode called The Trial of Wurzel Gummidge where Wurzel goes too far and the great Jeffrey Belden the most terrifying character ever created <laughs> the crow man puts him on trial and all the scarecrows from across the country come to the trial and it is honestly like Night of the Living Dead it's, 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 it's a kid show it's blankly terrifying they pull themselves up and there's like they march across the roads with these brilliant like artlessly crude faces and it's fabulous watch it <laughs> but all the all the, all the best the you know, all the fairy tales and obviously the old stuff i mean you know we like to be scared as kids don't we doctor who of course you know that's, that's an important thing i think parents don't realize that that kids like to be scared not they too do much, they but, do uh, but yeah. but it's there's a there's a there's a prevailing problem with like wrapping kids up in cotton wool not literally mm. uh <laughs> because uh, it's like a joseph boys installation um <laughs> There is, because we know kids respond to that. You, there's a healthy scare. That's what Doctor Who should be at its best. That's what fairy tales are. And you've got, you know, you've got a context. If you're being read a story by your parents, at the end they'll say 99. Or maybe not 99. <laughs> Watch 99. Um, but, it, you know, you feel secure and safe, but you've been scared because it works. And it's, it's great. And I, it's terribly dangerous to try and protect people from that because life is full of horror. Mm. And if you don't have any idea of it... Reese, once when, he, when his daughter was little, he said to me... Um, he, was, he said, Holly is suddenly talking about evil. And I don't understand where she's got the concept from. Because <laughs> he tried very hard. You know, it was all like flowers and... and but, you know, you will find... We find these things. Mm. As a child, my, my, I was most terrified of quicksand... I don't know why. There wasn't anywhere I lived. I was petrified of it. I used to have a recurring nightmare in which I was sucked down and I could see, I could see the sunlight and then all this sort of scum on the top. I don't know why. Probably some Tarzan film. It's almost certainly Tarzan, yeah. yes, yes. So, so you, you brought back uh, quite a few things. Obviously, uh, you... You're the the dead? You're, yes. You're, 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 <laughs> turn back time, all that. Um, the Man in Black, you were The Man in Black for, yes, for a long, long time, yes. which is very exciting. And you're obviously far too young to have heard the, the Valentine Dials. But, um, but I was you, very aware of them. Yeah. I mean, when I, got, I was asked to do that, I rang my dad up and said, you'll never guess how could it be The Man in Black. He was thrilled. Um, it's a curious job, that, because I, I used to do, like, one day of links every summer for, like, four years, I think. But uh, nothing to do with the story. Or very rarely, I sometimes interacted. People ask me about the stories. I go, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. I, I, I listened to them, but I, I wasn't involved in that way. It's a lovely job, that. And I wanted to... Um, they asked me to write one, and, and I said, oh, I'll do the very last one. But it never happened. But it was, it was a good idea. It was called, called The Dead Room, and it was going to be about me playing the man in black in one of those radio dead rooms and something goes terribly wrong. Oh, I thought that's, that's a good way to win. It's like Sapphire and Steel. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, and, and <laughs> you're living the dream, basically, Mark. You're doing all the things that the we've, we've, we've loved you to do. But you were in the live uh, Quatermass experiment mm. as well. How, what was it like doing live television? Was that was that terrifying, or you or a dab hand at theatre, obviously? But, um, but it's totally different. It's yeah. a it's a new kind of fear mm. for which there is no name because <laughs> it's also very unusual. That live drama is very unusual now, and it was like joining a club. Most of the the uh, members of which were in their seventies or eighties, because it hadn't been done for forever. It was thrilling, actually. It's just a, it was like doing a play with no audience, but knowing that half a million people were watching it. It was ever so strange, but great. I'd love to do some more. Really, it was it was really exciting. The best thing about that, though, was and talking about living the dream or Venn diagram of my brain. Um. If someone had told me when I was a child that whilst remaking the Quatermass experiment, my friend would tell me he was about to become Doctor Who, <laughs> I think I might have just exploded. <laughs> we, did the, we did the rehearsal in the afternoon, and we had microphones sewn into our hair. That was he's like West End play, you know, like West End musicals. Mm. And David Tennant said to me, uh, we've got to get rid of these, I've got something to tell you. And we went round the back, and he said, Chris isn't coming back. And I said, oh, I'd heard that. He, went, he said, they've asked me. I thought, oh, my God. And then we um, we went back to my house to what? Now, let's get this right. It was to watch um, episode two, The End of the World. And then we spent the rest of the day dressing up <laughs> and, like, like a scene from Doctor Who and going through things he might wear as the Doctor. Yeah. Very exciting times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the closest you've ever got, I suppose, is the is the <clears throat> the, the web of caves, uh, the the parody again with David Williams, where you play a, a sort of in between Hartnell and Troughton yes. doctor. Um, well, I, you know, I thought we were actually genuinely we were going to ask Jeffrey Bailden because he he should have been the doctor, of course, yeah. yeah. And then I thought totally selfishly, I thought this might be the only chance I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, it has been. So, so uh, far, I, yeah, so I don't far. know. Maybe I sh- we should have asked Jeffrey. Yeah. He should. He really should have been the doctor. John, John Pertwee said to me, Jeffrey would have been a marvelous doctor, and he would. And I know you probably know this, but um, when Tom Baker used to make his annual declaration, he was leaving around season sixteen. The reason that Jeffrey Belden is in The Creature from the Pit is a sort of screen test. Mm. Uh, he's wonderful. He would have been a brilliant doctor. He's still with us. It's so exciting he would have been alive in 2013 yeah. to be in the 50s. Or if he'd been, if he'd been the first doctor. Absolutely. Which apparently he was yeah, up that's, for. That, that, was the, that was the idea. Yeah, imagine. Oh, God, that's so exciting. Well, that would have been a different thing for your, um, your tribute to William Hartnell, though, wouldn't it? The, the film that you. Well, if you're still alive, yes. Still <laughs> to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, a, that was a thing a long time in the making, wasn't it? That, that, uh, yes, uh, I mean, the 13 drama. years yes. from, from first sort of <clears throat> notions. I mean, I didn't work it every day. That was, a, I think that was my. That might be my favourite thing about working on Doctor Who, actually, after 10 years of, of it being back, was getting the chance to do that. It's a love letter to Doctor Who in every... Cause it, I mean, the weird, and the weird thing is, Hartnell wasn't my era. Mm. But that story I had grown up with like a kind of fairy tale, the beginnings of the, the, the little show that could, and all those things from the making of Doctor Who, it was magical. And I gen- it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. Everything went right, everything. The casting, the direction, it was beautiful. It's a beautiful experience, so moving. And we did two weeks on location, then we went to Wimbledon Studios, gone. Mm. Another one. Yeah. Probably Boris Johnson, and uh, <laughs> and um, this, you know we put the TARDIS up, 
and I just, I got, I just got reams of people to come down and just stare at it. No, people couldn't believe it. It was, it was just people just go. <laughs> There it is. This is the fault locator. Yeah. Um, and that last day when you turned up as John Pertwee was, yeah. uh, was quite a Well, I could not, you see. <laughs> Had to happen. It, but, but really, that was the, this is the, it was the only fraught day. We had a, the scene in the morning, was very to Lambert's farewell scene, and I deliberately got all these people who used to be in the programme, like Jean Marsh, Annika Wills, to come down and be in the crowd. And then, and then the second part was, was David Bradley handing over to Patrick Troughton. So it's two of the doctors. And I, I nurtured this plan for months. <laughs> and I hired my own... The, the makeup and costume did it for me. I, um, I got a Pertwee costume and I was made up. And I just walked <laughs> to John Pertwee. And, but the time rotor on the TARDIS had broken down. It was the only fraught day. And Terry McDonald, the director, said, nice timing there. <laughs> but I could not. And we got... So I've got this wonderful picture uh, yeah. of the three of us together. Yeah, so cool. It was great. Amazing times. And look, we're running out of time. I could talk to you forever, you know this. But um, let me throw to this amazing audience. Any, any questions for Mark here at all? I'm sure there are loads. But anyway, in fact, maybe not. Okay. It's like okay. famous, yes. this famous thing when uh, Alan Bennett did Simon D or something. Yeah. Alan Bennett did his first Q&A and there was total silence. And then eventually someone put their hand up at the back and said, where do you get your shoes? <laughs> <laughs> where do you get yes. your shoes? Okay. So, Renson. Question, you were, I don't know whether you were bashing some problems with modern um, comedy, but I was uh, wanting to ask you. I quite enjoyed um, Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, and I was wondering Not seen if it. there was a beautiful relationship between Victor and Ego, I think. But what was bugging me a little bit, and what I think is very much happening in a lot of movies right now, especially modern movies, is that there was this kind of token women kind of taking away always a little bit of the kind of togetherness of the two main characters. And I personally didn't really think that she was important for the story at all. And I felt that was a little bit sad for me as a woman, because obviously I wanted her to be strong and mm -hmm. nice. But she was just there, in a sense, to kind of take away of, I don't know why she was there at all. And I wanted to ask you, do you think that's kind of a thing happening in a lot of things right now, that it's always that there has to be some kind of distraction from a female point of view when it's come when it comes to like two male characters I, I know where like you're going with this <laughs> uh, no I don't think so no no it has to nothing about sexuality at all but I think it's very interesting that there cannot be like just a friendship no the the, the, the important thing to do the important thing to do is that there was a I won't name the show but there was a show a few years ago in which um, the girlfriend of the lead spoiled everything. Mm. When you, as it were, you, you wanted them to go off and have adventures, and it was like a bit of a drag. And it's like that's a, that, you mustn't do that because then they, you, then people loathe that character because what you want to see is people having having an adventure, having a good time. So that's a, that's a thing to be aware of. I don't know about Victor Frankenstein. I haven't seen it because my big scene was cut, and uh, <laughs> I did it as a favour for Paul McGuigan, and because it was a horror film, so I can't comment on that film at all. I'm afraid. Um, except I got to throw the switch in the laboratory. Um, yeah, this is just like an example. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I mean, it's an interesting point. And I think, well, it's all, it's, it's only to do with the, with the writing and the, 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 the intentions of, of the thing. I mean, I don't think it's, um, you know, bromances have obviously become a big new Hollywood thing. People are aware of, of, of how they work and their power. Um, but if you if you haven't written a, a successful female character as part of that, then that's just a, that, well, that's a problem with the screenplay, isn't it? I think. Yeah. 
but I don't, I don't detect a sort of trend of, of women trying to spoil things. <laughs> That's not what I mean. I really mean that it's more like a device that has actually no meaning at all because you're a screenwriter and an actor. Don't you think that it's kind of... It's, it's really annoying me because I like all these old movies with this kind of two friends. It doesn't matter what gender they are. They're just going, mm. having adventures, mm, mm. and then they might be really great in uh, character. It doesn't matter what gender, whatever. But I feel like now is that we have, we have, we always have these characters. They need to be more than three, more than four, more than more, and they don't actually serve any purpose. Mm. It has to be always about more than two characters, otherwise audiences are not interested. I think we'll have to continue this later. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> any questions not so controversial? Okay. Yes, sir. No, okay, sadly, love the old Doctor Who's from the sixties. No longer with us. Do you have what? Yeah. Oh, okay. um, do you have? Is there one in particular that you'd like to see covered? Yes, uh, Power of the Daleks. That's the one. Now we've got Web of Fear back. <laughs> uh, no, Power is always the one I think because it's the the first Troughton. I think I love that story, mm. and and I, I I think particularly to see that first episode, we've only got stills and then the soundtrack, but it'd just be amazing, wouldn't it? I've I've got it here. <laughs> no, that's bed. Yeah, that's you. Sad. Um, Mac oh yes, also. <laughs> There's something quite exciting about it. It's like archaeology, isn't it? I mean, you've got the stills and the soundtracks, and it's like you know. Yeah, and, and when, they, when ha- they finally come back, does like a little chip at a time. I mean, it's amazing. That, yeah. I know it's so exciting. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Yes, please. Um, I was just wondering how the quest for Christmas ghost stories is going. No good. Well, um, I made a, I wrote and directed a ghost story for Christmas three years ago, in the in the confident expectation they'd want one a year. Uh, nothing so far. <laughs> I, look, I, I said, look, I'll do one of these the rest of my life, every year for the rest of my life, if you if you want me to. Uh, so far, nothing. <laughs> but I, yes, I'd love to. It's a, well, it's a tradition which is ridiculous. I don't care who does it as long as someone does it. And every Christmas rolls around and there isn't one, or we have to repeat them because because there isn't one, I think is ridiculous. The problem is, is making them cost-effective. I was only able to make the Tractate Middleth because we piggybacked it off the documentary through BBC Arts very cheaply. But doing a half-hour single programme these days is extremely difficult because they need to find a market, you know. Ideally, we'd make six in a go. <laughs> Sell them abroad and then show them annually. That's my plan. Yeah. I mean, Crooked House was a, a marvellous thing, which I suppose was in that sort of uh, yeah, yeah. genre, the yeah. amicus sort of portmanteau yeah. film. But, uh, but yeah, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll commission you for one of those. <laughs> we'll, we'll, do, we'll, we'll do 12 now. Let me yeah, clarify. Yeah, no, yeah. no, we'll, we'll get the money BBC can pay for this. Um, any other? Yes, yes. Let me do that. Yes. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> now, I can make a point, this is the only Sherlock thing we'll talk about today, but my hair <laughs> in Sherlock is exactly the same colour as Benedict's. Why is it always ginger? <laughs> <laughs> I am ginger, but Mycroft's hair is the same dye, it's always the same, and I never, ever see us with dark hair. Why is that? <laughs> but thank you, anyway. Uh, I think Sherlock has tried to be higher than you, just... Yes, good, good luck with that. <laughs> Short ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah. Sorry, it's okay. Carry on. Are you going to move that to no, as I say, we, we've been talking about doing something for one of our anniversaries coming up. We're being non-specific, just in case. But we're not we're not announcing anything because we want to see if it works. We just want to see if we've got if we've still got anything to say. I don't know. So, thank you. Yes. Go on. Um, my question is about <coughs> 60s shows. 
Um, I grew up watching The Avengers and The Saints, and I've been re-watching The Avengers reruns just recently. Mm. I've forgotten how creepy they were. Mm, they. And I, I wondered if those were shows that you watched at that age and enjoyed. Uh, not, well, not then. I was too young, but... Um, uh, I, I loved. I watched the new Avengers, and then and I was obsessed with trying to see the Avengers, but you couldn't see it. I didn't see it for years, really. But it's a brilliant show. I love its kind of. Well, it's odd. Mm. I mean, it's the sixties, so it's, everything's odd. <laughs> and, and I was. I have a lot, given a lot of thought to this. Is that, is that sometimes the prevailing culture will affect things? If you think about a series like Randall and Hopkirk, which I adored as a child, is essentially the same as a lot of those ITC series. Mm. In, in the 80s, it was Dempsey and Makepeace. But because it's the 60s, one of the detectives is dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, actually, a lot of the ones which appear to be very odd are just because the 60s were strange and everything was quirky, you know. That's obviously why it's, everyone loves it, because yeah. it's such a lovely, a lovely time, I think. Yes, I'm very fond of those. But it's mo- mostly 70s for me, because that's when I was growing up, and I have huge nostalgia for, um, for those shows, um, especially children's programmes, because they were all scary. It was just an edict. Get some standing stones in it. <laughs> Vaguely about King Arthur. <laughs> witchy, something witchy. Because they, they were, they were just, and they were petrifying. I loved them. And when they brought back um, Randall and Hopkirk, you were in that as well, weren't you? So yes, that's, well, that's a tick yes. on the bucket list oh, there. I, know, so. I, know. It's, I call it a Venn diagram of my retirement. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? Yes, right at the back there. Yes. Well, do you know the thing is? I was just saying it's it's in a, in an age when everything seems to be available. You do find things. I saw this film the other day. Um, I've been watching Hollywood, mm. Kevin Brownless, oh, okay. uh, yeah. which I adore. Uh, I've amazing. been watching two episodes a night, and I'd forgotten. I just just so wonderful. But I, in the sidebar, other things turn up and one of them um, is this film directed by Roy William Neal who directed most of the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes films it's from 1934 35 it's called The Ninth Guest it's astonishingly like and then there were none mm-hmm. and it's five years before Christie wrote the book okay. and I thought hello <laughs> I thought, has anyone ever noticed that? it really is it's mm-hmm. so The Ninth Guest is death brilliantly okay. all these people have been assembled they listen to a gramophone record, which accuses them of things. It's like, gosh, I thought I'd made a discovery there. I recommend it. Is that an original screenplay by... Yeah, I think so, that, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. okay. he was a British yeah. director, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, that's Okay. Mm. Oh. Giving it away now, you see. But yeah. <laughs> Spoilers. Anyway, OK. Yeah, Horror Hospital. I love Horror Hospital. Anything with Dennis Price in is going to be good. Um, yes? Yeah, and mine is really a question. Ah. To say, um, we love you. <laughs> Thank you very much. We were about to start shooting three more in April. Very, very frighteningly soon. <laughs> I'll have to dye this. <laughs> back, to, back to Ginger. Shh, we're not talking about Sherlock today. <laughs> Sherlock free zone today. <laughs> yes. Any more questions? Yes. I mentioned Christie uh, a little while ago. But you adapted a number of the stories. Three, yes. So did. I was wondering how you approached that, particularly like the big four, which is such a kind of gonzo adventure mm. format. Well, I was, you know, I, 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 I wish I'd had the chance to do some of the really good ones because Christie is the best. I think um, I've said this many times. There's a famous story about Billy Wilder when he did Witness of the Prosecution, which is a great film, and um, 
a journalist asked him why he was bothering with Agatha Christie. He said, uh, uh, Agatha Christie's characters, her, her dialogue, you know, I couldn't do this in an afternoon, but her plots are like fucking ball bearings. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's right, they were just, she had like 35 of the best ideas anyone's ever had. Just one after another, brilliant, breathtaking. And um, so when I, when, I, when I was asked to do Poirot, uh, they, they were on the last few books and, and usually the difficult books. But I enjoyed it hugely, I think particularly Halloween Party, because I thought, that's a late one, but I thought I can do a lot with this in terms of the flavour and the atmosphere and put some nightmare sequences into it and stuff like that. But the Big Four was the one I wanted to do first because it was really difficult. And when it finally happened, it was really difficult. The only way to do it was to sort of genuinely junk a lot of the book because it doesn't make any sense and she hated it. And she wrote it just after her disappearance and all sorts of stuff. It's just a sort of collection. of. So I tried to take the best bits of it, really. It was tough. But, you know, you look at something like the ABC murders or Five Little Pigs and, or Orient Express, and, and those, they're just wonderful, wonderful. I was just I was talking to my friend Matt before we came in that uh, I'd love to... Um, maybe the thing to do later is to create my own detective that I'll play and then write some detective stories set in foreign locations because we we need some more death on the nile type stuff don't we yes the trouble is trying to come up with the bloody mysteries <laughs> <laughs> i think we're getting near the end now david how are we doing for time we're at 20 past five i'll make it so uh, okay any more questions we're sweet of yes man hi i um, just wanted to ask you what do you think about the diversity issue that now people are talking about from hollywood about cinema I think that the, there's obviously a problem and I think the problem lies right at the centre. You can't change the Oscar voting until the, the people who are voting are not largely elderly and white. You can't change... Uh, diversity on TV until the people who make the decisions are not white and from Oxbridge. And that's just the way it is. And, and they, you know, there are lots of very well-intentioned attempts, but if, you, if the people who keep getting those jobs are from the same place and the same ethnic background, it'll never change. It'll never be anything other than token. Having said that, I mean, theatre is a real leader there because it's, it used to be a thing. Uh, and now it isn't. You just cross cast. You just don't think about it. You absolutely don't think about it. Nobody thinks about it. Nobody suddenly says there's a, there's a black actor in there or, you know, there's, a, there's an Asian woman playing that part. It's just not a thing. And where theatre leads, I think everything else follows. Yeah. Um, it's, I, mean, I mean, controversial. I'm not going to be controversial. But I, was, I actually just looked at a poster of the doctors the other day and it suddenly looked, it suddenly looked very odd that they were all white men. Mm. Mm. I, and in a way, it didn't, you know, once for a time. Yeah, it suddenly yeah. looked very odd. Uh, but then I think very strongly about this. It's the same as casting a female doctor. I've suddenly gone to that now. I wasn't even going to talk about it. <laughs> but it should only be <clears throat> because the right person, that's all. But there's, I, I, I would cast a female doctor. Tomorrow I would cast an Asian doctor or anything. It just has to be the right person. So you just go, well, it's got to be them, hasn't it? And then everything else follows. I mean, it would be an amazing thing because it would change so much of the perception of, of uh, broadcasting to have a, a huge lead like that. Um, 
but it shouldn't be because someone feels the pressure to tick a box because I think that's deadly in any respect. You'd, you'd feel that anyway. It's like, oh, we've got to do this now because they're telling us to. That's wrong. Yeah. Any more? Yes, as we started to talk about diversity and experimentation... The and, dance group, and yes, very big fan. <laughs> yeah, uh, politics, uh, politics that's, uh, you, uh, there was a, an amazing project here in uh, the vote. Uh, so basically I just said that it's a very good example of all of this, of all you're talking about, about uh, actually... Uh, yes, well, I mean, there was a play I did last year at the Donmar, set in a polling station... And we did it. We broadcast it live on election night in real time, and there were fifty of us in the cast. And it was, uh, it was, you know, modern Britain. That was the point. Everybody was sort of represented, and it was, it's real, you know. Well, certainly in London, that's a, that's a. It's always been the the beating heart of this city, and the idea that you can shut that down is crazy, you know. Did you see the former president of Mexico talking about Donald Trump? It's amazing. <laughs> amazing. Watch it. I won't swear. It's brilliant. I'm, I'm, this is a, we'll finish on a serious point. Okay, why not? I'm petrified about... Have you ever read a book called The Plot Against America by Philip Roth? No. It's a counterfactual where Charles Lindbergh becomes a crypto-fascist president of America. That's what's going to happen. Uh, I don't... They, they're running out of options. That man is nuts. He's not just like an idiot like George W. Bush. He's nuts. Mm. And unless something happens, I think we've had it. Mm. I do. Something's going to kick off. He's, he's crazy. And I, I can't believe there aren't any mechanisms in place to stop <laughs> a crazy man becoming president. There must be something. I don't think there is, is there? No, no. Well, I, I'll say this to America. All these, <laughs> all these successful conspiracy series, there must be some way. <laughs> Absolutely. I think on that note, we should end. <laughs> Mr. Mark Gatiss, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded live in front of an audience at the Museum of Comedy, Bloomsbury, London. Museumofcomedy.com.